0: Let's open our Bibles together to the book of Romans, chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, and I'm going to read and preach verses 14 through 18 this morning, verses which are about the sovereignty of God's mercy, the sovereignty of God's mercy. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign over who he shows mercy to. He doesn't show mercy to those who deserve it. He doesn't show mercy to those who've earned it. Nobody deserves mercy from God. Nobody earns mercy from God. We all deserve his judgment because of our many sins. So he's not obligated to show mercy to anyone. He's not required or constrained to show mercy to anyone. And yet, because he is merciful... Because he is rich in mercy, he pours out his mercy on undeserving sinners like you and me. But he is sovereign over which undeserving sinners he pours out his mercy upon. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, as it says in our passage, quoting again Exodus 33, as Pastor Deckard referred to in the service earlier. So that's what Paul's gonna talk about in the verses we have before us this morning. He's gonna talk about the sovereignty of God's mercy and let me just say here at the beginning that we are in the deep end of the pool so if at any point you start to feel a little panicked because your feet can't touch the bottom that's okay none of our feet can touch the bottom of these mysteries but let's remember together that this is our God that we're talking about And we know that he's good and we know that he's just in all that he does. And this is his word we are listening to. We know his word is true and it is trustworthy. We want to try our best to understand it. Of course, we want to submit to it and receive it and allow it to shape our thinking and even to correct our thinking wherever that may be needed. And we can trust the Lord to help us, to keep us safe, to keep us afloat as we navigate these depths together. So let's pray now that he would help us, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the sovereignty of your mercy. We know that you are God, and we are not. And we know that you are good, and that you are just, and that you are right in all you do. And we thank you that by your gracious will alone, we are recipients of your mercy, through Christ, and we pray that as we try to understand these verses this morning that you would help us, give us understanding, give us open minds and open hearts so that we can receive your word with humility, so that we can take in your word with gladness. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 9, reading verses 14 through 18. This is God's word. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, Three points we'll consider as we look into these verses together. Number one, justice in verse 14. Number two, mercy in verses 15 and 16. And number three, sovereignty in verses 17 and 18. Verse 14 is about God's justice. Look again at what Paul says there in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. In other words, in light of everything he's just said about God choosing Jacob and not Esau, even though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in light of that, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Was it unjust for God to choose Jacob and not to choose Esau? Paul says, by no means. No, it wasn't unjust for God to do so. And he's gonna go on to give the reason why it wasn't unjust in the next verse, essentially because God was showing mercy and also that's his prerogative as God. We'll look at that under our second main point in just a minute. But first I want us to consider just a few things regarding God's justice as it's mentioned here in this verse. Two things briefly. Number one, God is just. God is just. The justice of God is an attribute of God taught clearly in the word of God. Like here in verse 14, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So God is just. Or Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Or 2 Chronicles 19, verse 7. There is no injustice with the Lord our God. Two verses in Job, chapter 8, verse 3. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? Later, chapter 34, verse 10. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness. And from the Almighty that he should do wrong. Verse 12. Of a truth... God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Psalm 92, verse 15 says, The Lord is upright. There is no unrighteousness in him. And finally, Genesis 18, verse 25, Abraham says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God is just. He is a perfect judge. He's a good judge, a fair judge. He's not a corrupt judge. All his ways are justice and there is no injustice with the Lord our God. So even if we perhaps struggle to understand some of these things here in Romans 9, we can always come back to the fact that God is just. Even if we don't know how all this fits together, we do know that God is just in all he does and we can trust his justice. That is the solid rock under our feet. That's the anchor that holds us fast. That's the north star that orients us and helps us navigate these deep waters. God is just. Secondly, we like justice, but we are not the standard of justice. We like justice. We, we have an instinctive desire for justice. We don't like when things are unjust, and that's partially at least because we are made in the image of a just God, and we have the just law of God written on our heart, and so we like justice, and we don't like injustice. Injustice. So kids, if your mom was pouring some chocolate milk into cups for you and for your siblings, if those cups did not all exactly have the same amount of chocolate milk in them, some were a little higher, some were a little lower, you wouldn't like that, would you? That's because you like justice and you don't like injustice. You're just like all of us in that respect. But even though all of us like justice, we have to also understand that we are not the standard of justice. We are human beings, not God. We are creatures, not the creator. And we are sinners. So our sense of justice is tainted by the fall. And for all those reasons... We shouldn't demand that God meet our standard of justice. We shouldn't hold our standard of justice over his head and demand that he meet that standard and conform to its requirements because he's God. He alone is perfectly just. And the highest standard of justice in the universe is his own holy character. So even though we like justice because we're made in his image, We are not the standard of justice, he is. And we need to keep that in mind as we go through Romans 9 together, humbly keeping it in mind. And one more thing about justice, because of the gospel and because of God's ongoing work of sanctification in our hearts, we can actually grow to become more like God in this area. Our sense of justice can become more like his. Our sense of justice can be calibrated and tuned More and more to his perfect justice. And I trust that he will do that in us even this morning through the preaching of his word. So, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. By no means. That's about justice, God's justice. Let's look at our second main point now mercy. Why wasn't it unjust for God to choose Jacob and not to choose Esau? Verse 15 gives us the answer. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. There's really two reasons here why it wasn't unjust for God to choose Jacob and not Esau. Number one, It wasn't unjust because God was showing mercy to Jacob. It wasn't like they both deserved to be chosen, but then God only chose one of them, and so he's being unjust. No, neither of them deserved to be chosen. So when God did choose one of them, he was showing mercy. He wasn't being unjust, he was being merciful. He was showing mercy to an undeserving sinner. Again, if they both deserved to be chosen, then for him to choose one and not the other would be unjust because he'd be giving one what he deserves, but then withholding from the other what he deserves. But if neither of them deserve to be chosen, and yet he chooses one of them, he's not being unjust, he's showing mercy. And he's not obligated to show mercy to the other, So there's no injustice. This is true with regard to all people, not just Jacob and Esau. All mankind is running away from God. We're all fallen in Adam. We're all in rebellion against God. We've spat in his face. We've turned our backs on him and we're running away from him as far and as fast as we possibly can. And there's a cliff on the horizon, and we're headed straight for it. If God, in his grace, reaches out and turns some people around, is he being unjust? No, he's not being unjust. He's being merciful. He's only being unjust if we all deserve to be rescued from going over the cliff. But none of us deserve to be rescued. None of us even want to be rescued until he changes our hearts. So if he rescues some, there is no injustice in that. He is showing mercy to them, he is rescuing them from what they deserve. The second reason it wasn't unjust for God to choose Jacob and not Esau was because God can show mercy to whomever he wills to show mercy. Because he's God. That's his prerogative as God. That's his right as God. He is free to do that as the sovereign over all. And I think that's really the main point of the reference in verse 15, which again is a reference to Exodus 33 that Deckard read for us earlier. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That is, I will have mercy and compassion on whomever I choose to have mercy and compassion. And notice, by the way, it's just a side note here, that Paul appeals to Scripture to the word of God, to answer the question of whether or not it was unjust for God to choose Jacob and not Esau. He doesn't appeal to some other standard of justice, to some external standard of justice. He appear, appeals to the ultimate standard of justice, the written word of God. And he's saying to his readers, to the readers of this letter, what I'm telling you is consistent with what God has already told you. Back in Exodus 33. 33 there's no injustice in this for as God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I choose to have mercy. Again, we have to keep in mind, nobody deserves mercy. And mercy comes from God. So God has the right to show mercy to whomever he chooses. It's his mercy after all. And he has the right to give it freely to whomever he wills. Sort of like a rich benefactor paying for a death row prisoner's release, if you could do that. It's the benefactor's money. And none of the prisoners on death row deserve to be released, so there's no injustice if the benefactor pays to free one and not another. He can do that for whomever he chooses in his kindness and mercy. Or, like the master in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, Matthew 20, verse 15, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Mercy belongs to God, and he's allowed to do with it whatever he wills. And if he chooses to show mercy to one and not to another, for his own good reasons, he's not being unjust, he's being merciful. Paul then draws a conclusion from all this in verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Salvation depends not on human will. It doesn't depend on free will because our wills are in bondage to sin. It doesn't depend on exertion Because all our righteousness is like filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. Salvation doesn't depend on works or effort or good deeds or merit or striving or earning. It depends on God who has mercy. It is not because of works, but because of him who calls, verse 11. It doesn't depend on your will. It depends on God's will. It doesn't depend on your exertion. It depends on God's election and grace. It's not like the Coast Guard rescuing you from drowning. They throw you a life preserver and they're ready to pull you in, but you have to grab a hold of the life preserver in order to be rescued. And if you made it and someone else sadly didn't, the difference between you and them is that you grabbed a hold of the life preserver and they didn't. The difference between you and them was you. Of course, you wouldn't really say that you saved yourself. You'd say the Coast Guard saved you, naturally enough. But when it comes down to it, what made the difference was you grabbing that life preserver. But that's not what it means in the Bible when it says that God saved us. We were not drowning when God saved us, we had already drowned. We were at the bottom of the ocean, lying there dead in our trespasses and sins. And God reached all the way down and regenerated our dead heart. He made us alive in Christ when we were dead in sin. And he saved us. And what made the difference between us And someone who's not saved was the sovereign mercy of God, the saving grace of God. It did not depend on our will or our exertion. It depended entirely on God himself who had mercy on us. So if you're a Christian, if your trust is in Christ alone for your eternal salvation, It is because of the sovereign mercy of God. Remember that this morning. Rejoice in that this morning. You were running away from God and he turned you around. You were on death row and he paid for your release. You were drowned and dead at the bottom of the ocean and he made you alive. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 that we saw in the front of our bulletins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Titus 3, 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Well, we've looked at God's justice. We've looked at God's mercy. Let's look finally at God's sovereignty. Our third and final point, sovereignty. Verse 17 starts with the word for which in the flow of thought indicates that this is another reason being given why God was not unjust to choose Jacob and not Esau. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, pause there for just a second. Paul writes, for the scripture says to Pharaoh. And then he quotes a line from Exodus 9 where it is God who says these words to Pharaoh. A little reminder that what Scripture says, God says. Because Scripture is the word of God. It's not just the words of man about God, but the words of God about God. And therefore true and trustworthy and authoritative and powerful. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So another reason why God is not unjust to choose Jacob and not Esau is that he was free to raise up Pharaoh for his own purpose, to show his power and to proclaim his name in all the earth. So this is the flip side of the coin. God is free to show mercy on whomever he wills and... He is free to harden whomever he wills. Again, because he is God. He is the potter and we are the clay. He is the author and we are the characters in the story. We are real characters and we make real choices and are responsible for those choices. The Bible's very clear about that too. But we are not the author. God is the author. We see some of this in Exodus 9 itself. Let me encourage you to turn back to Exodus chapter 9 for a moment, if you would. Exodus 9. I want to read some of the verses around verse 16, which is the verse Paul quotes here. Exodus chapter 9. This is between plague 6 and 7 of the 10 plagues. And I want to read starting in verse 13. In Exodus chapter 9. Verse 13 Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home, will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. And the story goes on from there. God says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. God raises up kings and removes kings. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Romans 13, verse 1. Good for us to remember, especially when we have a midterm election coming up, an important election. Of course, we should be good citizens who engage in the political process by voting according to our biblically informed conscience, but we should do so humbly, recognizing that it is God who casts the deciding vote according to his unsearchable judgments and inscrutable ways. God is the one who raises up kings and removes kings. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you. God showed his power both in the salvation of his people and in the judgment of Pharaoh's people. He showed that the God of heaven was more powerful than the most powerful man on earth. That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's exactly what happened For example, Joshua 2, verses 8 through 10. Before the men lay down, Rahab came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. God's name was proclaimed in all the earth, in all that he did to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. And his name continues to be proclaimed in all the earth every time these stories are read. Paul then draws a conclusion again in verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Again, this is the flip side of the sovereignty coin. God has the right to show mercy to whomever he wills, and he has the right to harden whomever he wills. And that is what he did with Pharaoh. It's interesting, if you look through the book of Exodus, there are several passages that talk about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. There are 20 passages, to be exact. And I won't read all of them to you, but there are basically three different kinds of passages. Let me read a sample of each kind. First, there are declarations God makes about hardening Pharaoh's heart, declarations that he makes. For example, Exodus chapter four, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. There are multiple declarations along those lines. If you want to look up the other ones, you can write them down quickly. There's chapter seven, verse three, and chapter 14, verse four. Then there are several descriptions of God actually hardening Pharaoh's heart. Descriptions of that. For example, chapter 9, verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Other descriptions are chapter 7, verse 13, verse 14, and verse 22, chapter 8, verse 19. Chapter 9, verse 7, and verse 35. Chapter 10, verse 1, verse 20, and verse 27. Chapter 11, verse 10, and chapter 14, verse 8. Those are all declarations, or rather descriptions, of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. First declarations, then descriptions. Finally, there are denunciations, denunciations of Pharaoh for hardening his own heart. For example, chapter 9, verse 34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart he and his servants. Let me just read the other two, chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. So there are declarations that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. There are descriptions of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And there are denunciations of Pharaoh for hardening his own heart. Looking at it from below, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Looking at it from above, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You have divine sovereignty and human responsibility, both at play here. And listen to what John Murray wrote about this. The hardening, it should be remembered, is of a judicial character. It presupposes ill desert. And in the case of Pharaoh, particularly the ill desert of his self-hardening. Hardening may never be abstracted from the guilt of which it is the wages. Hardening may never be abstracted from the guilt of which it is the wages. God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So says the word of God. And as we draw to a close this morning, remember even if we can't understand all this fully, remember we can know for certain that God is just. We can trust his justice, both in salvation and in judgment. And also remember he is merciful when he shows Mercy to us, he is withholding what we deserve and graciously giving us what we don't deserve. And remember, he is sovereign. He is sovereign in salvation, he is sovereign in judgment. And therefore, ultimately, salvation depends not on us, but on God. If you're a believer, the only reason you're a recipient of mercy is because God chose to show you mercy. You are the recipient of sovereign mercy. If you're not a believer this morning, ask God to show you that mercy. The mercy you need comes from him alone. Look to him in faith for your salvation. Put your trust in Jesus for your salvation. Salvation is not a scholarship, like a merit-based college scholarship. You do really well, and, and then God will save you. No, salvation is sovereign mercy shown to undeserving sinners. If we're in Christ, let's rejoice together this morning. Regardless of whatever else may be going on in our lives and in our hearts, there may be a great deal going on there. But we are undeserving sinners who are recipients of sovereign mercy. Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to rejoice in you, in the sovereign mercy you have shown to us in saving us from our sin. Help us to trust you with the things we don't fully understand. Your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we know that your ways and your thoughts are just and wise and good. And again, help us to rejoice together in our salvation, to rejoice in sovereign mercy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.